The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 4, verses 15 through 19, as we continue our study through the Gospel of John, and we are at a part in the Gospel in which uh, Jesus has begun a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and as we noted last week, uh, this was a divine appointment for her. It had been ordained from before time that she would meet the Lord Jesus at this place and at this hour because he had come to seek and to save the lost. And the course of their conversation uh, centered around water uh, because Jesus had come to the well to get a drink and, and she was there at that well to draw water and then to take it back home. And so Jesus did, as he often does in conversation and, and did in his preaching, he used the topic of water, something that was at hand, something that was visible, that was tangible to her, uh, to begin a spiritual conversation with her, to steer her to see her uh, spiritual need. And so I'm going to read verses 7 through 14 to remind us of the context of our sermon text this morning. John chapter 4, beginning of verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What we see in their conversation is that Jesus here was speaking about something spiritual, but as you may have noticed in the text, she was stuck on thinking about her physical needs. She was thinking about physical water because this is one of the thoughts that consumed her throughout the day. There's water that she needed to cook with, water to wash with, water to drink, and we know that it's a hot and dry part of the world. And so much of her time was taken up with this concern of getting enough water. And so in the course of their conversation, when she heard Jesus speaking of living water that he could provide for her, she immediately jumped at the chance of finding this living water. Now, living water in an earthly sense referred to water that flowed or or moved. As we said last week, you can think about water that's uh, coming out of a stream or of a river or a spring, perhaps. It's constantly moving and it's fresh. And it's, in a sense, living in that way. It's not like pond water or dead or um, well water that is often still and stagnant. 
And so when Jesus said to this woman, I would have given you living water, she was surprised. She knew the area where they were. She probably knew every watering source in that area. And so she was thinking, is there a stream or a spring somewhere around here with living water that I don't know about? And she notes there that even Jacob, when he needed to find water for him and his livestock, he had to spend time digging a well in order to get that water. And so she says, and you know then where I can find living water? Where is this water that you speak of? But we see that Jesus was not referring to uh, that kind of water, water that you drink, only to find out later that you're thirsty again, and so you need more and more. But he was referring to the spiritual life that God alone can give. He says very clearly in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. As we noted last week, what water was Jesus speaking about? He was speaking about the Holy Spirit. He was speaking specifically about the life-giving Spirit. And we know this because later on in the Gospel of John, we read in chapter 7, beginning at verse 37, that Jesus said to a crowd that had gathered around him, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so Jesus was speaking here about his sending the Holy Spirit and his granting the Holy Spirit in order to give spiritual life to his people. And Jesus was therefore pointing out her spiritual need that he alone could fulfill. And all the while she was stuck on thinking only about her physical needs. And we see this because of how she responded in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still thinking about the physical water that she needed on a daily basis. She was still thinking about wells and and buckets. And so Jesus, in the next few verses, very intentionally, we see, steers her to the deeper issues of her spiritual need. As we read in verses 16 through 19, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now what we learn first in these verses is that the Lord knows our sin. The Lord knows our sin. Now Jesus pointed out that she was breaking the, second, uh, the seventh commandment. She was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And this was a, a remarkable thing for Jesus to point out because it seems that he had never met this woman before. And he also wasn't from the region where she lived. 
Remember, he had come through Samaria on his way to Galilee. He was coming through this, this area, and he didn't live in this area. In fact, Samaria, as it was known, was considered a wasteland to the Jews during Jesus' day because of the Samaritans who lived there. And so the question is, how did Jesus know so many specific details about her life and her sin? Well, loved ones, it's because Jesus had divine knowledge, because he is the Son of God. We saw the same idea, didn't we, in John chapter 1, when after Jesus called Philip to follow him as one of his disciples, Philip then enthusiastically went and found Nathanael and said to him, come and see, meaning you have to come and see the Messiah. We have met him, and, and so you need to meet him as well. And so we pick up in John chapter 1, beginning at verse 47, about what happened next. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, uh, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under that fig tree, but he was obviously shocked that Jesus saw him there. And Nathaniel was thinking, yes, I remember being under the fig tree, and I was sure nobody was around me, but uh, somehow this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he, he saw me, and he knew me. Whatever it was, there's something in this exchange in John chapter 1 between Jesus and Nathanael that signifies to Nathanael that this is not an ordinary man that I'm speaking with. And it's what we find out later in John chapter 2, verse 24, that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's something about Jesus' reply here with the fig tree and the Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel can just tell this man is seeing right through me. And he knows some stuff about me that I don't think anybody knew about me. And so Nathaniel declared then, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And, and it's the same idea with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus, in the course of their conversation, was revealing something about God ultimately. He was revealing to this woman his identity. And he is revealing to us this morning that God has full, complete knowledge of us. In fact, loved ones, he knows us even better than we know ourselves. A.W. Pink, a theologian, he explains how this can be. He writes, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. He knows what is in the darkness, Daniel chapter 2. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. 
His knowledge is perfect. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And just like Nathaniel responded in wonder, so did this woman, because we see she says in verse 19, as Jesus looks into her heart and into her life, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. A prophet, perhaps, like Moses, who spoke from God. In fact, it was Jesus' knowledge of her life that led her ultimately to believe in him. We read in verse 28 of John chapter 4, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And so Jesus reveals that God knows our sin, even our secret sin, even our hidden sin, the sin that we think nobody else knows about. God knows about it. And notice in our text that Jesus also reveals that God not only knows our sin, but he also confronts us about it. This is the second point of the sermon outline. You know, it would have been one thing if uh, Jesus uh, knew about her sin and then didn't mention it, uh, just didn't bring it up in the course of their conversation. In fact, if we think about it, a lot of people in our culture today are rather comfortable with this idea. Uh, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Or they'll say something like, you know, God shouldn't care about what I do in my uh, private life. Uh, I understand that he might care about big sins like uh, murder and, and terrorism and, and genocide. I get that. But not the personal uh, matters of my life, the personal things that take place in my home or in my bedroom or perhaps in my own thought life. Uh, but loved ones, what we see in Scripture is that that's not the way that God works. He knows our sin, and he also confronts us about our sin, our personal sin. And the reason Jesus did that for the Samaritan woman, we see, was because he wanted her to see her need for the spiritual life that he alone can give. He wasn't being mean. He wasn't trying to just shame her and then walk away. But he wanted to expose her heart so that she would see her deep need of the life-giving spirit that he alone can give. Because she was, as we see in our, in our text this morning, she was stuck about thinking only about her physical needs. But by exposing her sin, he revealed her deeper, more pressing needs. She needed spiritual life that can come only through Christ's spirit. And loved ones, God continues, even today, to confront us about our sin, and he does this primarily through his moral law, his moral law, which is uh, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Uh, this is one of the main uses or functions of the law. It reveals our sin, and, and it reveals that our standing before God, apart from Christ, is as sinners. Now, the law, the moral law, is given to us in order to strip away the hypocrisy of the human heart. The hypocrisy which uh, constantly imagines that we have some kind of right standing before God, even apart from Christ. The law comes in and it reveals our depravity. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, 
He says, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it was to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. And then he says, and sin, through the commandment, has become sinful beyond measure. That sin has become sinful as God exposed the Apostle Paul to his depravity through the law. Paul, they're mentioning specifically the Tenth Commandment. Paul says, I saw the exceeding sinfulness of my sin. I was laid bare. And he says there in Romans chapter 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being is justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, loved ones, the law has several functions, but the one thing it cannot do is make a woman or a man righteous before God. Instead, what it does is it reveals us to be guilty before God. And We know that the Lord Jesus in the gospel drives this point home even more. He doesn't make the law easier or he doesn't take away aspects of the law or somehow make it easier to fulfill the law, but he actually shows the depths of our depravity even more in his preaching because when Jesus came and said that the law is more than mere outward obedience, but it's a matter of the heart. It's not just rules and regulations, but it also addresses the problem in our hearts that we do not love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we do not love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Jesus was driving the point home all the more that we stand guilty before the holy God. See, loved ones, God confronts us about our sin just as Jesus did to the Samaritan woman. But notice, notice that he did so in order to reveal her need and to show that he could fulfill her need. To show that he could fulfill her need. You know, it would have been one thing if Jesus had simply pointed out her sin and then said, lady, uh, you need to straighten up your life. Uh, You need to make some positive changes so that you can begin living your best life now. In fact, Let me give you 12 steps to improve your life beginning at this very moment. Loved ones, what would that have been? That would have been more law. See, he would have been simply weighing her down even more with more condemnation and with greater inability to fulfill what she needed to do before the Lord. He would have been adding to her helplessness and driving her further into herself and into her inability to change. And And that's what's so important about what he said to her in John chapter 4, verse 10. Because he he looked at her and he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Loved ones, what Jesus told her and what he is telling each of us is that While God does know our sin, and we know our sinfulness, God has also provided a way of salvation. Because the living water that Jesus gives is his spirit who regenerates us and gives us new life. And this is why Jesus pressed into her sinfulness, because he came 
to deal with our sin. And in dealing with our sin, he has, we know from the Gospels, he has removed its shame, its penalty, and its power. This is the third point in our sermon outline. He has removed its shame, its penalty, and its power. As we noted in our study last week, the fact that uh, this woman came at noontime to draw water indicates that her sin was known to her neighbors. Uh, women were more likely to go in groups to draw water. Um, it was usually in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening in order to avoid the scorching sun, but it seems that she was perhaps ostracized by her community because of her public shame and her very public sin. And so she went at noontime to draw water. But by, we see, speaking to her and saying to her in her shame and in her sense of being excluded, where Jesus said to her, I have living water for you, for you. Jesus was revealing that all who trust in him are cleansed of sin, are cleansed of its shame, of its penalty, and of its power. Because the Bible teaches us that when we confess our sins and we have faith in Christ's sacrifice and in his resurrection, that we become the children of God. We are, at that moment, cleansed from all of our sin, from all of our unrighteousness. That in Christ, our salvation is then eternally secure. We read in Psalm 103, verse 12, it says that God has cast our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And so as our substitute, our curse bearer, our obedient Savior, we read that Christ willingly undertook the shame, the humiliation, and the suffering that was rightly ours because of our sin, so that our sin might be removed from us. As far as the east is from the west. Isaiah captures this truth so clearly in chapter 53, verse 5, and, and notice the pattern that he, speaking of the suffering servant, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We know from the gospel that in Christ, loved ones, the sin of our guilt is covered, but also the shame of it. Paul says this so clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So even for those such as this woman who is afraid to make eye contact, who is ashamed of being out in public because of her reputation, the Lord Jesus says to her and to you and to me, I have living water for you, for you. Bert Parsons, a pastor in Florida, he wrote in Table Talk magazine a few years ago, he said, Jesus Christ redeemed us not only from his wrath and hell in the future, but from having to wallow in the mire of guilt and shame in the present. Jesus promised us not only eternal life in the future, but abundant life that begins in the present. Jesus lived and died not only for the guilt of our sin, but for the shame of our sin, he endured the cross, despising its shame, so that we would not have to wallow in shame. And loved ones, to assure us of that this morning, he has given us his word. He has given us the scriptures through which he preaches to us the law and also the gospel. 
to assure us that Christ has died for our sins and that we now stand before the throne of God dressed in Christ's righteousness. We get that from his word. And he has also given us his spirit, his spirit who takes the words of the Bible and and causes those words to penetrate deep into our hearts and into our minds so that we might not just hear but understand and believe and rejoice in what we hear. And he has also given us the sacraments, the bread and the wine on the table that are before us. The sacrament that is before us has been given by God in order to confirm, to, to seal what we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that we have received. They are like a king's seal on a letter. Today we might think about a signature on a contract. That signature verifies that what is written in the document is true, that every word of that contract will be fulfilled. In the same way, the sacraments confirm what God has promised, that Christ is ours by faith, and that in him we are forgiven of our sins. And so we are encouraged to cast all our anxiety upon him because he cares for us. The Lord Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rich truth of your word that so clearly reveals to us the way of salvation. Grant us assurance, we pray, that we may trust in Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all those who trust in him. Cause us to seek our refuge in him and him alone. And bless us now, we pray, as we partake of this spiritual feast before us. Uh, Prepare our hearts and minds so that we might receive Christ in a worthy manner. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.